It's not really a good, there's not a huge punchline. Actually, there was a fire at the fair and they needed water and so they came to me. And in the middle of the night, it's just kind of one of those weird sounds that you kind of like, that could be a bear. As soon as we start leaving that campsite, he's like, I, I literally can't walk. So I like whipped into camp with yeah. the most good story. I was working that one of the husky games. And the boy comes from like up the stairs and he's like, Pretty crazy, right? I think so. I don't know. Yeah. Okay, I think I've read that. We were like, oh, well, the next time we come, we're going to come with Emma. So we're at the wrong airport. Like, what do you do when you're at the wrong airport? You know when it takes the picture at the top? There's this person's hand right in front of my face. And I was getting nicer, and I was like, what are you doing? You're freaking out. Thank you, One of the kind of amazing things that I feel like I've experienced that I think is like a spiritual thing or God thing is like the bridge got shut down because there was like this massive oil tanker that like caught on fire. We were praying and, and all of a sudden like the clouds like part. Like I mean this is like weird. It was like the clouds part and we could see base camp. Well, good morning. Thank you for having me today. I want to welcome Skagit and Boca Raton and those of you who are streaming in from home in your pajamas. We're jealous. Um, I want to start by telling the story of what walked me into unexpectedly sitting in one of these church chairs. And uh, I myself was surprised about 20 years ago that I sat in Cornwall Church and I had no idea that my entire life was about to be turned upside down. Years of wounds and dysfunction, loneliness, abandonment issues, insecurities, secrets, and living out of all those places racked me up a pretty good reason to be a real mess by the time I was a college student. And I had this insatiable longing, and all my attempts to fill it left me more and more empty. So a few years before walking into church, I got a knock on my dorm door, and it was the guy from the night before who I barely knew. And he was crying and he handed me a Bible and said that he was sorry and ashamed for what we did together. And he might have felt guilty that day, but he sure as heck didn't for years to come when he used me for what he wanted to. But that schmuck was how I landed my very first Bible. I kid you not. And I put that thing on the shelf with no intention of ever opening it up because for years prior, I made fun of God's people and I threw the Bible back at the Gideons when they came on campus and I had no desire to trade grunge music in for hymns and I knew I would never scrapbook or like, you know, potluck casseroles and I didn't want anyone to tell me how to vote or what not to do with my boyfriends and Sundays were for nursing hangovers and I didn't think there was a God because where where was me when I needed him most? Where was he? And his people? I thought they were judgmental and dreadfully boring. By my junior year in college, my life was falling apart. I was walking to school and breaking down. I couldn't make it to class. And I began withdrawing from class and family and friends. And I remember feeling so desperate with nowhere to turn and I found myself in a hotel room in this city and I cannot tell you how I got there but all I know is that it was another night full of fear and shame and vulnerability. And I found myself wanting to be rescued from the pain that had been inflicted upon me and the pain that I was now inflicting upon myself and others. 
And so I cried out in this room and didn't even know if I was just talking to the walls. And I just yelled, if there's anybody who can come and help me. God, if you are real, if you're alive, can you please come and help me? And I suppose that was my first conversation with God. I wanted to be found by him and him by me, but I was sure that he wouldn't want anything to do with the likes of me. I was sure that I would call out like I remember doing as a kid after some god-awful experience with terror and nakedness and fear and the all-aloneness that's worse than any of that. And I wanted someone to hear me and rescue me, but no one seemed to come. So I was sure in that hotel room that I would stand there wanting God to come, but he would lead me in my want because somehow I deserved all this. My assumption that God would not enter my brokenness is one that I have come to realize I share with many others, maybe even you. Well, after pleading to God, it wasn't like, poof, God in Motel 6. But I have often heard God described as the hound of heaven, and he did stalk me. My coworkers were Christian. My hairdresser was Christian. My landlords were Christian. I went to counselor, and she was Christian. I mean, I'm surrounded by these people. And at the same time, I ended up opening that darn black book that had been sitting on my shelf for who knows how long. And it was like it had been staring at me. And it was called the Holy Bible. And I'd never read it in my entire life. And its words will pierce any open heart. And my heart was becoming as open as it was broken. And so I started reading on page one like most people do when they read books. In the beginning. And it seemed like in the beginning things were beautiful and amazing. And then they got really messed up. It seems like Adam, the first father, blew it and his sons were ruined and they ruined their sons and they ruined their sons. And the next thing you know, there's a bloody wounded mess with orphans and anger and widows and war and sad girls getting sloppy drunk and sleeping with boys to numb all their pain. And I started to think, if these are his words, the God who made everything, the one who made the universe and knit me together in my mother's womb, what could he possibly say to me about all this pain? How is he going to rescue all of us from this big mess? If he was real, I wanted to see him around every corner. I wanted to feel him. I wanted to hear him. I was talking to him like he's everywhere because he says that he is. And I was taking his promises back to him. And I was expecting faithfulness. I was counting on him to show up because I was done with no-shows. I've been trying to rescue myself my entire life since I was a little girl. And everyone around me. And it was his turn. This was not religion. This was not some sort of family expectation because we didn't have that in my family. This was my life and I needed God to make sense out of my life and my story and my pain. And that might seem expectant, but expectancy is why I think I found God all over the place. And after a long pursuit on his part and mine at the age of 21, I handed my life to Jesus Christ. And when I say I handed it over, I mean quite literally I could see my hands raise up truly ready to surrender the pain and the abuse and the fear and my past and my present and my body and my broken dreams, all of it. 
The day I gave my life to Jesus was in a charismatic church with about 20 Christian women in a room who didn't speak my native tongue and they didn't hold my same values. So it was a very unlikely place to find a woman like me. But I had been invited by a woman that got a place in my life that was just bold and sassy enough to love me in my mess. And so I said yes to her. And here I'm in this room and some lady asked me my opinion on some topic. And I said, I'm not a Christian. I probably shouldn't answer. And she looked at me intensely and said, what are you waiting for? And I knew in that moment that I wasn't waiting for anything except perhaps a moment of decidedness. I wanted God, and I hoped he wanted me to. It was that moment that these sweet and well-intended women started praying over me in tongues, which scared the heck out of me because they were also praying that I would speak in tongues. And it wasn't happening for me. And though I think it possible, I started freaking out in my little brain. I was like, oh my gosh, do I fake him out or do I wait him out? And I thought, no, God is real and I will be too. So I waited him out and about a half hour later, I ran out of that place like a scary religious monster was chasing me and I didn't think I'd ever set foot in church again. So you can imagine my tentativeness when I've never been a church attender and the very next week I drive to Cornwall Church by myself and I park my car and I say to God, and maybe my second prayer, God, If this is where you want me, help me to know. And I walked into this place and felt a sense of belonging like I've never felt before. And I wanted my commitment to Jesus to feel more my style, so I had a chat with God and marked the box in the communication card, I give my life to Christ. Well, the next week I was checking groceries to pay for my Long Island iced teas in college. And two guys randomly come through my line. They're buying massive amounts of baby food, and I'm kind of sassy, so I start to make fun of them and ask them why. And they tell me that they're uh, youth leaders at the church that I just divinely walked into. And I said, no way. I just visited your church. And they said, well, you should come and be a youth leader. (laughs) I was like, yeah. I was like, you guys, there's no way, not me. I mean, I'd never been a part of a youth group, let alone qualified to lead at one. I wouldn't have a clue how to make a 15-year-old play with baby food and turn that into a bestie friendship with Jesus. And I was thinking, like, I'm not even tied with God. I love peach schnapps, and I love dancing to Bob Marley. I mean, how could God use a girl like me? I don't fit the profile. But these two men were convincing enough that I showed up at this church's rowdy youth group for the first time as a leader. This was a long time ago, so don't be afraid if your kids are in the current youth group, all right? (laughs) A few days later, I was checking groceries again, and a lady was standing behind me, and I said, can I help you? And she looked at me and said in a British voice, I kid you not, she said, I knew you when you were a little girl, and I need to meet with you. So I met with this woman that I did not know. And Pam said her job was to go through the communication cards at Cornwall Church, this church I randomly visited, and that when she came across my name, she knew that there couldn't be another, and she remembered me from my hometown where she also used to live all the way across the state. She started crying, and she said, I used to see you when you were playing on the streets as a little girl, and God told me that you were hurting and you were going to need him. 
So I've been praying for you for 15 years, even though I didn't know you, and you just walked into my church in another city almost two decades later and handed your life to Jesus Christ. Now we're both crying at a coffee shop, and I think God knew that I needed to see that he'd been trying to break into my pain my entire life. So I show up as a youth leader the next week and the next week and the next week. And I often felt insecure to help people for God. And I was sure I didn't belong and I wasn't good enough to be a leader. But the more I showed up to help kids, the more that Jesus started helping me and these crazy things started happening and I'd wake up in the middle of the night and I'd have words come out my mouth and I had to write them down because I couldn't wait to share them with struggling teenagers and it started freaking me out. So I met with a youth pastor and his wife and I said, oh my gosh, what do you think is happening to me? And they said, we believe that you're being called into vocational ministry. I said, what's that? They said, duh, like it's when ministry is your career and your calling. And I started stomping my feet on the inside saying, no, not me. I mean, I was pursuing a business degree and I wanted to go into the corporate world and make lots of money. And I was going to bring and marry schmucky Bible boy, right? And Jesus was, yeah, you think that's funny. Jesus was my new friend. And I was like, well, sure, he can come along with me, right? Because I wasn't a Jesus follower. I was a Jesus dragger. And maybe some of you can resonate with that. Well, one day after class, I was walking a trail and words came out my mouth again. And it was my voice, but it was his words. And he said, I want to use your life to proclaim my power. Sure, you believe in me, but I want more than that for you and from you. When you get off this trail, you choose. Are you going to go your own way or are you going to follow me? And I knew when I stepped off that trail what I was going to do. So I dumped Schmucky Bible Boy and I applied to be a pastoral intern at this church. But I was sure that when they found out who I was that they'd turn me down lickety-split. On my third interview with Pastor Bob, he lovingly challenged me and asked me if I would try preaching. And I said, me? No way. I mean, I'll clean and set up chairs and play dodgeball and visit the elderly in nursing homes and hang out with teenagers. But I will never speak up front and actually have something to say that will change lives. I've never taken Bible 101 or a speech class. And plus, I have a big booty and no one needs to see that. No, not me, never. So this church turned me down for an internship. Of course they did, I thought, looking for evidence of what I already believed about myself. I had an opportunity to be used by God to do amazing things, but I walked away because I didn't believe that God could use me. And I just wonder how often do you walk away from opportunities to do amazing things because you don't see how it's possible? How often do you say, not me? Because this not me keeps our dreams small instead of big. This not me has us cowering in fear saying no when we really actually want to say yes. This not me has some of us discouraged and disappointed in our career and our calling. 
This not me has a settling for the ordinary, even at the invite of the extraordinary. And this not me makes our God small and our faith even smaller. This not me has some of you waiting. You're waiting to get cooler. You're waiting to get younger. That's not going to happen. You're waiting to get tighter with the big man upstairs. You're waiting for experience. You're waiting for the season to pass. You're waiting to be like Susie. You're waiting for your insecurities to be replaced with confidence. And you know what? Some of you are even waiting for your personality and talents to change. And you know what? You can wait till you're blue in the face, friends, because you being more is not what's going to pull off amazing things in your life. John 6 tells a story about God doing something absolutely amazing through someone who surely thought not me. And I am confident today that God will meet us in our place of discouragement and our small dreams and our big fears. And he will personally speak to each one of us where we find ourselves today. This miracle was recorded in all four Gospels. And it starts out with this huge crowd of people following Jesus because he's healing the sick. And, you know, I think we sometimes read the Bible like we read CNN news, like thousands of people were displaced from their homes, like six people were shot at a mall, like another middle schooler committed suicide. When the Bible says a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick, these were people's mothers with cancer and people's brothers with mental illness and people's children with epilepsy, and Jesus was healing them. And I would follow him too, like I would grab some sunscreen and some trail mix and throw it in a fanny pack and travel to Timbuktu if Jesus healed someone that I love. Well, Jesus, he sees this mob coming at him, and I actually think his response is pretty funny. I mean, I think he could have supernaturally vanished and been like, poof, Jesus at an Irish pub listening to bagpipers. Or, or he could have broken up in groups and been like, okay, it's time to share your happies and crappies. But he doesn't. Instead, he says to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people? And I'm reading this passage, and I'm like, dude, Jesus, why why you got to feed them? Just let them go home and have nachos later. But Jesus' question is to help Philip realize what Jesus already knew, because verse 6 says, for Jesus already had in mind what he was going to do. And I just wonder how often we're in a scenario and we're freaking out and we're thinking, there is no way. And yet God is sitting there confident in his plan and he knows what he's going to do. And maybe this can be our new mantra when our kids come home from school and they're hurting and there's nothing we can do to make it better. Maybe we can say God already has in mind what he's going to do. Or when the love of our life decides we aren't good enough and we go to bed alone in our grief, we can remind ourselves somehow God already has in mind what he's going to do. Or when we're given the opportunity to do something amazing and we see no way it's possible, maybe we can say, self, you have a God who has in mind what he's already going to do. I just wonder how it would change our mindset if we stood confidently on this belief in all circumstances. And so Philip answered Jesus the way that I think we would. He says it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. 
Notice Andrew sees differently than Philip, though, because Andrew says, here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Out of 5,000 people, Andrew spots some potential in this one boy and his loser lunch. Now imagine this boy, right? Like he's following the crowd. Who knows why? Maybe he just wants to know what all the hullabaloo is about. Maybe he was intrigued by Jesus. Or maybe his mama needed a miracle. Regardless of why this boy happened to find himself on the same hillside as Jesus, I'm 100% sure he did not expect to be called out that day. There he was with his little lunch, an inferior lunch, no less. Barley bread was cheap. It was the bread of the poor. One commentator said that barley was called the food of beasts and an offering for a woman who has committed adultery. Ever feel inferior like what you have is not enough? This boy totally resonates. And yet Andrew sees in him potential. The word potential means latent qualities or abilities that may be developed and lead to future success or usefulness. Seeing potential in someone is something you see that may be developed but hasn't yet been. Seeing potential is why Pastor Bob asked me if I would preach decades ago. He saw in me what I couldn't see in myself. Seeing potential in others requires looking past obstacles, present status, abilities, weaknesses, and failures. And so often it seems like we can't see beyond the now. But God sees who a man was, who a man is, and who a man can become. Seeing potential in someone requires a foresight because of a trust in what God can do in another person's life. Seeing potential looks like you picking the least likely boy in a huge crowd with the smallest lunch and saying, that's the ticket. And the greatest enemy of seeing potential is only looking for success. Seeing potential in someone is not seeing success. Everyone here can see success. Seeing potential is seeing something that is not yet. And we have to be a people who see potential before the proof. Imagine all the lives that are untapped of their God-given potential because God's people are only looking for success. When you look at your kids and your spouse, and your co-workers, and your employees, and the volunteers, the people in your life, are you looking for success, or are you looking for potential? We often don't see potential because we box certain kinds of people out, and when we box people out, we box God in. Our definition of who God uses keeps us from seeing his amazingness all the time. I mean, imagine being the scoffers on the hillside who at the suggestion of Jesus using what this poor boy had probably thought what we often do. No way, because surely God only uses wealthy, put-together, strong, educated, good-looking, charming, super spiritual people with accolades, impressive resumes, and lots of likes on Instagram. We so often box out certain kinds of people, the elderly, the disabled, the depressed, the odd, the sinful, and the shy. And when we do this, we limit God's power because we limit God's people. 
Who are we to do this? Seeing potential in other people costs you nothing. It might have cost Jesus Christ everything, but not you. As a business owner, it's free. As a leader, it's free. As a parent, it's free. As a teacher, it's free. As a friend, it's free. Seeing potential in others might possibly be the greatest impact move you can make in the world around you. Imagine the stories people could tell about how you called them up. Imagine the impact if we started being Andrews, calling out the God-given potential in the people who stopped believing that they had it. Untapped potential, I wonder, is quite possibly God's answer to so many of our world's needs, and all we have to do is be like Andrew and call it out. We often don't see potential because we see in terms of possibility and not power. For being a people of faith, have we lost all hope in a God who holds the power to do powerful things? Are we like Philip, only looking at possibilities certain there is no way? I mean, sometimes I think we don't even give awesome things half a second to have a chance to breathe. Can God pull off amazing things? Can God take something small and make something big? Can God do something impossible? Please, people of faith, tell me that he can. And look at Jesus, what he does at the crazy suggestion of using a poor kid's hoe bread to feed the masses. Jesus sat them down and took the loaves and gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted, and he did the same with the fish. I mean, this is off the hook. And Jesus knew what he was going to do, both here on this hillside in this miracle, but also one day coming soon, because we would see later in Luke twenty-two nineteen, the night before Jesus was crucified, he also did what? He took bread and gave thanks and broke it and said... This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus knew that day with the 5,000 people that in the same way that he broke bread and gave thanks to feed them, he too would be broken and give thanks to save them. Jesus knew that we as people would experience pain and hardship and abuse and betrayal and name-calling and breakups and hangovers. And he knew that it would leave us so hungry and we'd try to satiate our hunger and, it, hunger and it would leave us even hungrier. And he knew that this would end up stealing our God-given potential and worth. And so Jesus would end up choosing to give away more than bread, but his very self for all of us who've ever found ourselves hungry. But not yet. That was to come later. For now, Jesus' power pulled off something amazing through someone who was looked upon as inferior. That's what God's power does. God's power supersedes small and young and insignificant and messed up and bad track record and broke. God's power is not held back by disbelief or disadvantage. God's power is not intimidated by not going to happen, never in no ways. God's power is not restricted by impossibility, improbability, or impracticality. No, God knows what his power can do through one person's life. God is not sitting around fretting, trying to figure out how he's going to write an amazing story with your life. No, that's you. 
but not God, because God sees in us what we cannot see in ourselves, because God is the ultimate potential spotter. And we see that all the time throughout the pages of Scripture. God saw the Peter in Simon, who Simon did not see in himself. God saw the woman who would be used to change her village in the get-around girl at the well. God saw the preacher and Paul in the, in the Christian killer Saul. And here God sees in this little lad and his weak sauce lunch a beautiful way to feed his people and an amazing story that would be told to inspire his people to feed others for thousands of years to come. So imagine what God sees in you. And I just wonder if we've sort of given up Sort of started just believing in the ordinary, just settled for mediocrity, just started dreaming small because those big things, those amazing things aren't going to happen. And so for the rest of our time together, I want to tell you what made me turn around from my not me to my yes you. I want to tell you about this God that I learned about in that darn black book. He's a God who uses unlikely people to do amazing things. Throughout history, God's used frady cats, punks, failures, and big bad sinners with painful stories and sketchy pasts to change lives. God picks the least likely. I mean, if God used the people that we would, Goliath would still be bullying people, but instead God used an insecure, unequipped young man who stepped up and didn't let insecurity in what he didn't have get in the way of what he was called to do. And God used David to pelt an oppressive monster straight square in the eyes with a mere pebble to rescue his people. God, if he used the people that we would, Gideon's people would still be oppressed while he put his confidence in his sissy baby self, but instead God found that unlikely wimp hiding in fear, peeing his own pants, and God used him to set his people free. If God used the same people we would, the Israelites would still be slaves for Pharaoh. The Red Sea never would have parted because Moses would have let his stutter and disability determine what he was supposed to do with his life. But instead, Moses allowed the call of God to be louder than his weakness, and that saved a nation. If God picked the people that we would, the 5,000 hungry humans would now be hangry, but instead God chose to use an unlikely little boy's lunch to feed a small city. So you know what? You can sit around until you're 95 and you can say, I'm too. I'm too uneducated. I'm too old. I'm too much of a disappointment. I'm too stained. I'm too ungodly. I have too much baggage. I'm too. God's too. God's too big. God's too supernatural. God's too mighty. God's too miraculous. God is too amazing. God is too everything. You're too not. So if you think it's unlikely that God can use you, you're in the right place. That's where Moses was at the burning bush. That's where Gideon was in the wine press. That's where Joseph was when his brothers threw him in the hole. God uses unlikely people. So we know it's him, and when you start to believe this, it'll be you that he uses. It's often when you're peeing your pants and you're stuttering and you're holding a bag of barley, it's in that kind of unlikeliness that God does his greatest work. Because he's a God who uses what confounds us. 
1 Corinthians says, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. The word shame here is more accurately the word confound, which means destroy, baffle, frustrate, throw into confusion. God will confound you by who he uses. God will surprise you. He will not be predictable in his power. His power cannot be made sense by man. So then when God uses nitwits and depressed artists and recovering drug addicts and people who are socially awkward, only God will get the props. It must have been his power, they will say. God wants to confound people with your life, but you have to let him. He's a God that uses our weaknesses for opportunities to show his power. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Your divorce, your disability, your bankruptcy, your sickness, your addiction, anything that you view as a weakness in your life can be used as God's canvas to display his power. You think that's ludicrous. So is a little boy's lunch. So is a rod. So are five stones and a slingshot. And so is God hanging on a tree for you and me. Salvation came through what looked like weakness, humility, suffering, pain, wounds, and death. He is a God who uses pain. Isaiah 53 describes what the one who would come and change the world, the Messiah, what he would look like. It says he has no beauty, beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Even God himself didn't use force or arrogance or the highest rung on a ladder or lots of letters after his name to do amazing things. He didn't use a perfect family line or a position of power or wealth or worldly ideals of strength to impact the world. God used not a crib, but a manger. God, use not a because I told you so authority, but instead I'll show you so humility. God, use not a long line of Christian nobility, but instead a family tree that was about as crooked as can be with harlots and heathens that birthed his DNA. God, use not a throne, but a cross. God, use not success, but suffering. God, use not a strong hand of punishment, nor a power play, but instead he laid down his life in a salvation move that was well played. And yet we think... It's going to be by our clout and our cool factor and our titles and our magnetism that does amazing things. Who are we kidding? What does God use to do amazing things? Wounds. He wears them like the shirt on his back. He wears the wounds that caused our wounds and the wounds that we now inflict upon others. And he says with his entire life and death, these wounds will not keep you from me. Your wounds will not have the final say. No, my wounds will determine who you will be. 
We have a God who enters our brokenness and wipes it all over himself. Your brokenness didn't keep him from saving you. It sure as heck isn't going to keep him from using you to do amazing things with your life. And some of you have been hurt, and I get it. And you still live in fear, and your fear is paralyzing your destiny. And some of you, man, you don't trust anybody. But your trust issues are holding you back from great things. And some of you have been wounded by the church, and your wounds are keeping God and his call on your life at a distance. And some of you are sure that your mess will just keep following you wherever you go so you've stopped dreaming. And others of you have been told that you don't have what it takes to do great things and you've started to believe it. And you know what? You can believe all those lies because that's what brokenness does. Brokenness lies to us, but we have a God who enters brokenness and he purposes it. We have a God who can take everything you've ever been through and instead of writing you off, he can write the best stories with it. He does his greatest work through pain, his own and ours. So allow him to meet you there and use you there too. So decades ago, after being turned down to be an intern at this church because I wasn't willing to believe God could use me preach, Jesus challenged my confidence problem. Everything that I saw in Jesus made me turn around. That's all it was. Just what I saw in him. And I went back to Pastor Bob and I said, Bob, God told me never say no to what I can do through you. And so here I am. And I'm, I'm taking him at his word. And so the day that I stopped saying not me to myself, but instead yes you to God, was the day that I became an intern at this church over 20 years ago. And the pastors threw me in with the wolves, which wasn't very nice. And I had no speech class, no training, no Bible 101. And I had to get up and speak about God to 100 teens in a way that was supposed to impact their life. There just wasn't anything in me that thought this was a good idea. But the people in this church, seeing the potential in me, changed the trajectory of my entire life. Your voices and your encouragement and your prodding and your prayers and your belief in me pushed me into who I was becoming instead of staying stuck as who I'd been. And so there I was, on a stage with a mic, and all I felt like I had was pain in my pocket and a God who met me there. And I shared a little bit of my story. And this high school girl came up to me crying and she said, I know what it's like to hurt too. My stepdad beats me. And she wanted my rescuer and we wanted him together. And for over 20 years now, I get to do that God has been having me do this thing that I never thought that I could do or wanted to do. And it's been like getting front row tickets to see the greatness of what only God can do in people who need rescue and healing and hope. And over and over again, I've just been that same girl. 
with pain in my pocket and a God who meets me there and I still haven't had Bible 101 or a speech class and I have a bigger booty and I got to fight all the not me's, right? I'm doing that right now. And I lead a ministry called Collide, which is another crazy fish and loaf story for another day. But because of my work with Collide, I often preach places, which is comical, right? And I was on my way to speak at a retreat last year and all the not me's came flooding in. And I write about this story in the Yes You Bible study book that we just published and we're really excited about for women. And you guys can check those out and buy a copy if you want this afternoon. But I write about this story and I'm on the way to this retreat. And I was overwhelmed by how little I felt like I had to give. I was feeling fatigued and faithless and thinking, how can God use me like this? And the last thing I want to do, if I'm being honest, was leave my family for another weekend. But I went to this retreat and I preached, you know, four messages and I did Q&As and I listened to sad stories and I um, prayed over women. And after my last message, truthfully, I was so ready to get home and put sweats on and cuddle my kids and sleep that I was like almost running out the door, but trying to look like I wasn't. And wouldn't you know it, this woman stopped me at the door. And she shocked me with the seriousness of her story. She said, I want to die. I want to go upstairs and I want to take pills and I want to fall asleep and I never want to wake up again. This was a mom and a wife. And I put my bags down and I put my not me's down. And I knew that my friend Kelly and I, we knew that we needed a God-sized miracle. We needed something supernatural. We needed God to show up and replace this woman's despair with hope. And so we started fighting for her life and her will to live. And, and we started pointing her towards her rescuer and praying over her. And then we handed her back to her community so she could get the help that she needed. And she just recently contacted me a year later and told me that she is doing well. But all I knew driving home that night is that our not-me's do nothing for this world. Our not-me's are not doing anything for people who want to end their lives. Our not-me's are not instilling hope to people who've lost all theirs. Our not-me's are not helping struggling teenagers. Our not-me's are not raising children who don't have parents. Our not-me's are not comforting widows. Our not-me's are not feeding the hungry. Our not-me's are not preaching good news to people who are desperate for some good news. But our yes-you's, our yes-you's are all we've got and it's all God needs. And this story shows that in John 6, it ends with thousands of people having their fill and there's more left over than they started with. And Jesus says, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled the 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. What strikes me most about this story is that Jesus used what this boy had. That's what God does. God uses what we have. Not what others have, not what we wish we had, not what we think we need, but what we already have, our story, our experiences, our gifts, our weaknesses, our learning lessons, our pain. Our God says nothing 
will be wasted. God doesn't need us to go out and get another lunch to pull off something big, but we have to hand it over for God to use this boy to write an incredibly worthy story, he was going to have to hand over his lunch, right? He was going to have to decide. Is he going to hoard all the fish and loaves to himself? Is he going to laugh off the whole suggestion as mockery? Is he going to just drown in his not-me's, continuing not to do anything great? This boy must have gotten to the place where he held out his measly lunch, trusting Jesus' power could do something with the little that he felt he had. The greatest stories we're telling are told through people who believe in the greatness of what God can do through them. God will use your life to do amazing things when you begin to believe that he can. Yes, you So today I want to end by praying together. And I'm going to invite you guys to stand up. And like I did some 20 years ago, I'm going to invite you to close your eyes and hold your hands out before you as if you're handing God what you have and what you don't. I often pray like this. God, We hand you what we have. We hand you our gifts and our strengths and our talents and our passions. And we hand you what we don't have. We hand you the places where we feel insecure, where we failed, where we've botched it. We hand you our pain and our mess. God, we also hand you our dreams Jesus Christ, we hand you our whole life and we ask that you would take it and you would do something amazing through us. In your powerful name, amen.